0: Let's turn our Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I've been moving through, my last few messages have been going through the study of 2 Corinthians. We'll look to see if we can get through chapter 4 and a little bit of chapter 5 this evening. And um, the message tonight is called Courage for the Conflict. And the key theme for this section of scripture is repeated in verse uh, 1 and in verse 16. It says, we faint not. Literally, Paul said, we do not lose heart. So we faint not, we do not lose heart. And there were certainly plenty of reasons for discouragement in Paul's situation. Yet the great apostle did not quit. What was it that kept him from fainting um, in the conflicts of life? Well, he knew what he possessed in Jesus Christ. That was what was kept him from, from quitting. Instead of complaining about what he did not have, Paul rejoiced in what he did have and what you and I have as well. So let's just open in prayer before we look into the word. Lord God, we thank you for tonight and we thank you for each one who's come out to hear your word tonight and and listening in online as well, Lord, we thank you for each one of them. We pray that you would just fill me with your Holy Spirit tonight and, and that your words would be, uh, come forth, that your Holy Spirit would work in people's hearts and that your word be proclaimed and you would do a, a work tonight. We pray and commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So what did he have? What did he possess? Well, the first thing he possessed was that... Um, and what we possess is we have a great ministry. Looking in verses uh, 1 through to 6, it says, um, Therefore, seeing we have this kind of ministry. So we have a, a glorious ministry. And, this is, uh, and that, that term there, seeing we have this kind of ministry, is the literal translation of what Paul wrote. So what kind of ministry, what, it, what is it? The kind described in the, is in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, it is a glorious ministry that brings men life, it brings salvation, and it brings righteousness. A ministry that is, a, that is able to transform people's lives. This ministry is a, is a gift, and we, we receive that gift from God. It is given to us because of God's mercy, not because of anything that, that we have done. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17 says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he hath counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying and worthy of all ex- acceptation that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me, first Jesus Christ, might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him through life etern- everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. He has put this ministry into us. We have this great ministry, and the way you look at your ministry can help to determine how you will fulfil it. If you look at serving Christ as a burden instead of a privilege, you're going to be a drudgery, and you'll only do what's what's required of you some people even look on service as a punishment from god when paul considered the fact that um, he was a minister for jesus christ he was overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of god his positive attitude towards his ministry had some practical consequences in his life so he had this ministry and he he valued it he thought it was it was a privilege and the first thing is what is it? it kept him from being a quitter he, in, in verse 1 it says there, and it, but he confessed to the, to the Corinthians that his trial in, in Asia nearly brought him to despair. In Second Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 he says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came unto us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, in so much that we despaired even of life. He was pushed to the limit. In spite of his great gifts and vast experience, Paul was still human and he was subject to human frailties. But how um, could he lose heart when he was involved in such a, a great ministry? Would God have entrusted this ministry to him if, um, so that he could just fail? Of course not. With the divine calling came a divine enabling. He knew that God would see him through. A discouraged preacher wrote, to uh, a great Scottish preacher called Alexander White and to ask him counsel. He says, Should I leave the ministry? Ne- um, he, he asks that question. And, the answer, and White wrote back to him and said, Never think of giving up preaching. The angels around the throne envy your great work. And that was the kind of reply Paul would have written Um, the kind of reply that that we also need to ponder whenever we feel that our work is in vain. So the second thing by valuing that ministry uh, enabled Paul, it enabled him to to keep him from being a deceiver. And we read there in verses 2 to 4, verse 2 there, "...but he have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully," but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul was certainly alluding to the Judaizers uh, when he was writing these words. And Many false teachers claim today um, the base of their doctrine, uh, claim to base their doctrine under the word of God, but false teachers handle the word of God in deceitful ways. You can you can pretty much prove anything that you want to prove from the word of God if, if you want to twist the scriptures out of context and you're, you want to reject the witness of your own, own conscience and we see that happening today the Bible is a book of literature and it must be interpreted according to the fundamental rules um, of interpretation if people treated other books the way they treated the Bible they would never learn anything I've been doing some study over the last year or so and um And I've got to study textbooks and sometimes they're hard. I did a thing on probability just recently and it was difficult. And if I just read it and I thought I understood it and then I applied it to a problem, I would get the wrong answer. So you have to study it hard. It's like, oh, I didn't get that right. I don't quite understand it. I had to read it like 10, 20 times to try and get it in my head and understand it properly. But people don't do that. They can twist it and make it fit whatever they want to and then apply it to however they want to. But Paul had nothing to hide, either in his personal life or in his preaching of the word. Everything was open and honest. There was no deception, there was no distortion of of the word. The Judaizers were guilty of twisting the scriptures to fit their own preconceived interpretations. And ignorant people were willing to follow them. If Paul was such a faithful teacher of the word then, why did not more people come to believe his message? Uh, Why were the false teachers so successful in in winning converts? Because the mind of a lost sinner is blinded by Satan. And fallen men find it easier to believe lies than it is to believe the truth. In uh, verses 3 to 4 there it says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded their minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel who is in the image of God should shine in unto them. Paul had already explained that the minds of the Jews were, were veiled because of the blindness of their of their hearts. It says here in Second in, uh, Corinthians chapter three, verses fourteen to sixteen, but their minds were blinded until this day remain the same veil taken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ, even as unto this day when Moses is read, the veils upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. He's talking about the Jews there and the the veil that is still on them today. They can't understand the truth of, of Christ being their Messiah. But he's also the minds of the Gentiles, the rest of the people in this world. They're lost. They're perishing. They cannot understand the message of the gospel. Satan does not want that glorious light of salvation to shine into their hearts. As the God of this age and the prince of this world, Satan keeps lost sinners in the dark. The sad thing is that Satan uses religious leaders, like the Judaizers, to deceive people. And many are people who today belong to cults that were originally members of Christian churches. They can be deceived and and brought off into weird and wonderful things. So I kept him from being a deceiver, but... The ministry and having that value of that kept him from also being a self promoter in verses five and six. The awesome fact that Paul had received this ministry from Christ kept him from being a quitter, it kept him from being a deceiver, but also kept him from being this self promoter. And it says there in verse five, We preach not ourselves. The Judaizers enjoyed preaching about themselves and glorifying themselves and their achievements. In the previous chapter in verse. In chapter 3, in verse 14 and 16, but, oh, sorry, we've already read that one. But they had not servants um, who, they were, sorry, they were not servants who tried to help people. These Judaizers were not there to try and serve the people and trying to help the people. Um, They were there as dictators and they exploited people. Paul was certainly a man who practiced genuine humility and he didn't trust in himself verses uh, chapter 1 and verse 9 of 2nd Corinthians it says there but we had the sentence of death on ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God which raises the dead we're flawed people we're sinners and we're going to do wrong things but we can't trust in ourselves and our own strength we can only trust in, in God God's the only one that can, can do these things so he didn't, he didn't trust in himself or he didn't commend himself, he didn't preach himself. He sought only to lead people to Jesus Christ and to build them up in the faith. It would have been easy for Paul to be able to build his own fan club uh, from himself and take advantage of the weak people who thrive on the association with great men. And the Judaizers operated that way. But Paul rejected that kind of ministry... So what happens when you share Jesus Christ with lost sinners? Well, the light starts to shine in. And we talk, we've we spoken about how people have got these tracks. And that's what we need to be praying. The Holy Spirit would open and show the light through, through reading of God's word. Um, and the light begins to shine. And Paul compared, the conversion, to cre- uh, uh, compared conversion to creation, uh, which is described... In Genesis chapter one, verses one to three, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. Like, like the earth, and in verse two, there the lost sinner is formless and empty, but when he trusts Christ, he becomes a new creation. 2 Corinthians five seventeen says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. God then begins to form and fill the life of this person who trusts Christ and he begins to, um, to be fruitful for the Lord. God's, um, God's let there be light makes everything new. And that's the ministry we have. When we accept Christ, we all have a ministry then for him. And that was our, our first point. What we have to be able to keep us going is that glorious ministry. The second point is that we have a valuable treasure, verses 7 through to 12. So from the glory of the new creation, Paul moved into the humility of the clay vessel. We used to have some clay vessels around, and I think Adolf used to get on the wheel and, and make... Oh, that was actually Mr. Brunken there, yeah, who used to get on the into that and, and make... Uh, earthen vessels and the believer is a simple jar of clay an earthen an earthen vessel and and really is is nothing but what makes them something is the treasure that is found within it within that vessel that's the what gives the vessel the value the image of the vessel is a reoccurring one in scripture and it is from that that we can learn many lessons to begin with, God has made us the way we are so that we can do the work that he wants us to do. So he's made us the way we are so we can do the work that he wants us to do. God said of Paul, He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. God, Paul had been made to be able to go and serve the Gentiles in that way. No Christian should ever complain to God because of a lack of gifts or abilities or because his limitations or handicaps. God's entrusted everyone, he's made everyone the way that you are to be able to serve him in a particular way. Psalm one hundred and thirty nine, thirteen to 16 says, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvellous are thy works. And that my soul knoweth right well, my substance is not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, yet um, they were was none, uh, and yet there was none of them. This passage of scripture in Psalms indicates that our very genetic structure. Is in the hands of God. Each of us must accept Himself um, and be Himself. The important thing about being a vessel is is being clean and empty and, and available for service. I had my mum come over yesterday for a cuppa, and and I had a, a cup of, uh, I had a, a coffee cup there ready to use, and I grabbed it and looked in it. And I'm like, oh, it's got coffee grains in it, I did. it wasn't clean and ready to use, I had to put it aside I couldn't use it for its purpose and that's what God expects us uh, from us to be able to be clean, empty ready and available for service each one of us must seek to become a vessel under honour we need to be sanctified, we need to be set apart and meet for the Father's use and be prepared under every good work we are vessels so that God might use us and we are earthen vessels so that we might depend on God's power and not our own. We must focus uh, on the treasure and not the vessel. So don't look at our, us. We're this earthen vessel. It's the treasure, it's, it's God that is within us that we need to focus on. And Paul was not afraid of suffering or trials because he knew that God would guard the vessel so long as, God, as Paul was guarding the treasure. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.11 says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. God has given us this glorious gospel for us to be able to go and minister and do things for him. So if God's given that to us, we can trust that God is going to allow that to happen. He's going to allow us to be able to fulfill that. First Timothy 6.20 says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, Avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called. So, God permits trials, and God controls trials, and God uses trials for his own glory. God is glorified through weak vessels. The missionary who opened up inland China, Hudson Taylor, used to say, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. And sometimes God permits our vessels to be jarred so that some of the treasure will spill out and be able to enrich others. And many years ago, Dad made a, he had an old pot and he cracked it open. And uh, he, uh, he used it as an, as an illustration and he spray-painted it and put all uh, bright um, glitter and, and, and bright lights and stuff inside of it. And uh, he used it that it's cracked and, and can be opened up to be able to show the glory of God in, with, with inside, the treasure that is within with inside each one of us. And we, we need to be able to think of that. It's, we, we ourselves are, are but nothing. But it's, it's God that enables us to be able to enrich others. You see, suffering reveals not only the weakness of man, but it also reveals the glory of God. And Paul presented a series of paradoxes in this paragraph. He talks about earthen vessels, but he, he also talks about the power of God. He talks about the dying of Jesus, but he also talks about the life of Jesus. He talks about death working, but also life working. The natural mind can't understand these spiritual truths and therefore can't understand why Christians triumph over over suffering. Not only must we focus on the treasure and not on the vessel, but we must also focus on the master and not the servant. If we suffer, it is for Jesus' sake. If we die to self, it is so that the life of Christ might be revealed in us. If we go through trials, it is so that Christ might be glorified, and all this is for the sake of others. As we serve Christ, death works in us, but life works in those with whom we minister. Doctor John Henry Jowsett said, "Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing." And he was right. There was a pastor and his friend, and they went and they heard a young man preach a very eloquent sermon. Uh, but it lacks something. And the pastor said, there was just something missing, he said to his friend. And his friend replied, yes, and it won't be there until his heart is broken. After has suffered a while, he will have a message that is worth listening to. The Judaizers did not suffer. Instead of winning lost souls, they stole converts from, from Paul's churches. Instead of sacrificing for the people, they made people sacrifice for them. The false teachers did not have a treasure to share. All they had were some museum pieces from the old covenant, faded antiquities that would never enrich a person's life. Many people are ignorant of the price that a, a pastor, or a minister, uh, a missionary of God pays to be a, to be faithful in the Lord and serving um, and serving God's people. This section is is one of three sections we talked about. A devoted list of all of. Paul's sufferings—you can see all the different things that that he went through—and there's other lists of in um, in Corinthians as well. And the tr- the the test of a true ministry is, is not the stars that that come from the ministry, but it's the scars. It says in Galatians six seventeen, "From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks or the brands of the Lord Jesus Christ." How? So, how can we keep from giving up? By remembering that we are privileged to have a treasure of the gospel in our vessels of clay. The third thing that we have is um, a confident faith. Looking at verses 13 through to 18 there. And we, we read there um, the phrase spirit of faith, which means attitude or our outlook of faith. And Paul was not referring to a special gift of faith, but rather to that attitude of faith that ought to belong to every believer. He saw himself identified with a believer who wrote um, a, a Psalm 116, verse 10, I believed and therefore have I spoken. True witness for God is based on, based on faith in God, and that faith comes from God's word. Romans 10 Seventeen says, So then faith cometh by hearing, in hearing by the word of God. We can only get, get the ability to be able to talk about God from reading it. But nothing closes a believer's mouth like unbelief. Luke 1.20 says, And behold, thou shalt be dumb, as in you can't speak, and, and not able to speak, until the day which those things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. How can we speak about God if we don't know anything about him or, be, or what he has done? Of what was Paul so confident? That he had nothing to fear from life or death. That's what he was confident about. In, in life or death, he had nothing to fear. He had just listed some of the trials that uh, are a part of his life and his ministry, and now he was affirming that his faith gave him victory over all of them. Note that um, the assurances that he had because of his faith. So the first one was that he was sure of the ultimate victory in verse 14. If Jesus Christ had conquered death, the last enemy, then why should he fear anything else? Men do everything they can to penetrate the meaning of death and to prepare for it, yet the world has no answer to death. Until a person is prepared to die, he really is not ready to live. The joyful message of the early church was the victory of Christ over death. And we need to be able to return to that uh, victorious emphasis. Note too that Paul um, saw a future reunion of God's people when he wrote, um, and shall present us with you. So death is a great divider, but in in Jesus Christ, there is assurance that his people shall be reunited in his presence. First Thessalonians four three to thirteen to eighteen says, "But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others have no hope. For we, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which shall sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. For we say unto you by the word of God." We sure we have surety of the ultimate victory. God has won the victory. We can have a confident faith as well because he was sure that God would be glorified. Verse fifteen there and it says, um, "For all things are for your sakes that the abundant grace might be through thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God." And this this verse parallels with Romans chapter eight verse twenty eight and says. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. You see how those verses line up together. And gives us assurance that our sufferings are not wasted. God uses them to minister to others and also to bring glory to his name. How is God glorified in our trials? You might be thinking. Well, by giving us the abundant grace, we need to be able to maintain joy and strength when the, when the going gets difficult. Whatever begins with grace um, leads to glory. Psalm 84 verse 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold, withhold from them that walk uprightly. First Peter 5.10 says But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus after all you have suffered a while make you perfect, establish, strengthen and settle you. He was sure that God will be glorified through all this. That's the purpose. And you can have confidence in faith because he was sure his trials were working for him and not against him. In verse 16 and 17. In verse 16 it says there our key phrase here is we faint not as we saw in verse 1 we faint not was Paul's confident testimony what does it matter if the outward person is perishing so long as the inward person is experiencing spiritual renewal Paul's not suggesting that the body is not important or that the that we should ignore its warnings and its needs since our bodies are the temple of God, we must care for them. We, we cannot control, though, the natural deterioration uh, of our human nature. When we consider all the physical trials that Paul endured, it was no wonder um, he wrote as he did. As Christians, we must live one day at a time. No matter how wealthy or gifted, you cannot live, live two days at a time. God provides us... Uh, for us a day by day. And as we pray to him um, in Luke 11.3, it says, give us day by day our daily bread. We get it a day at a time. He gives us the strength that we need according to our daily requirements. Deuteronomy 33.25 says, thy shoes shall be iron and brass, as, um, and as thy days, so, so shall thy strength be. We must not make the mistake of trying to store up grace for future emergencies because God gives us the grace um, when we need it. We don't need to try and uh, hold it on. He'll give it to us when we need it. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in help uh, of time of need. When we learn to live a day at a time, confident in God's care, it takes a great deal of pressure off our lives. Yard by yard, it's hard. Inch by inch, it's a cinch. I'm going to sing that song afterwards. Um, when you live by faith in Christ, you get the right perspective on suffering. Note um, some of the contrasts here in verse 17 that Paul presents. He talks about light affi- affliction but he also talks about the weight of glory. He talks about things being momentary, but he also talks about things being eternal. He talks about working against us, and he also talks about working for us. And Paul was writing with eternity's um, eternal values in view. He was weighing the present trials against that future glory, and he discovered that these trials were actually working for him. Romans 8:18 8, says, "For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Those things that we're, we're going through um, are going to be able to give us glory in the end. We must not misunderstand this principle and think that a Christian can live any way that he pleases and expect nothing and, oh, sorry, and expect everything will be turned to glory uh, in the end. We can't just do whatever we want to do. Paul is writing about trials which he experienced um, in the will of God and he, as he was doing God's work. God can and does turn suffering into glory, but he cannot turn sin into glory. Sin must be judged because there is no glory in sin. Second Corinthians, or in, in verse 16, should also be related uh, to verse 18. Uh, but we all with open face beholding in a glass... or oh, sorry, chapter verse 18, In a glass the glory of God are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. These verses have to do with spiritual renewal of the child of God. Of itself, suffering will not make us holier men or women. Unless we yield to the Lord and we turn to his word and we trust in his work, our suffering could make us worse Christians. I'm sure the pastor could attest that many people have grown um, critical and bitter and they go from bad to worse instead of from glory to glory. We need that spirit of faith that Paul mentions to be able to look at going from glory to glory. But he was also sure of the invisible world. Uh, he was sure that this, the invisible world is a real world. Dr. A. W. Tozo used to remind people that the invisible world described in the Bible was the only real world. If we could only see the visible world uh, the way God wants us to see it, we would never be attracted by what it offers. One John, uh, chapter two and verse fifteen to seventeen says, "Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world." The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. and the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The great men and women of faith mentioned in Hebrews chapter eleven achieve what they could uh, achieve because they believed and they saw the invisible. Hebrews chapter eleven and verse 10 says, for he looked for a city which hath no foundations whose builder and maker is of God. He had a he had a vision, they're looking for eternal things, are looking for the uh, for heaven, for being in glory, being in the presence of God. Verses um, 13 and 14 of Hebrews 11 says, all these all these great heroes of the faith died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off And they are persuaded of them and they embrace them and they confess that they were strangers and pilgrims in this earth. For they say such things, declare plainly they seek a country. They were seeking um, God's things, not the the things of this world. Hebrews 11.27 says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He saw God. He saw what God was doing and he followed after that. And the, and the things of this world seem so real because we can see them and we can feel them, but they're only temporal and they're destined to pass away. Only the eternal things of spiritual life will last. Again, we must not press this truth into extremes and think that a material and, and spiritual things oppose each other. Uh, for when we use the material in God's will, he transforms it into the spiritual and he can use that um, to be able to, to be part of the treasure in heaven. Um, we value the material because it can be used to promote the spiritual and not for what it is in itself. So how can you look at things that are invisible though? How can we see the invisible? Well, it's by faith. When you read the word of God. We have never seen Christ. We've never seen heaven. Yet we know these things are real because the word of God tells us so. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. We read that in Hebrews 11. Because Abraham looked for the heavenly city. He separated himself from Sodom. But Lot chose Sodom because he walked by sight. And not by faith. They had that different vision. So Abraham looked for the heavenly city. He had his eyes on the eternal. Where Lot looked at the earthly things and he saw the green grass of the pastures there. all the, the easy, ease of life. Of course the unsaved world thinks we are odd and perhaps even crazy. Because we insist on the reality of an invisible world of spiritual blessings. Yet Christians are content to govern their lives by eternal values and not temporal prices. The last point is that we have a a future hope. This is moving into chapter 5, verses 1 through to to 8. So we've looked at that we have a ministry and we've also got a treasure and we've got the the same spirit of faith. And fourthly, we have a building of God. What a testimony Paul gave to the reality of the Christian faith. This building of God is not the uh, believer's heavenly home promised in John chapter 14. It is a glorified body. You see, Paul was a tent maker. We read that in, in Acts chapter 18. And, and he used the tent as a picture of our earthly bodies. And a tent is a weak structure, and it's a temporary, temporary thing that we put up and we pull down, and, and it doesn't have a lot of beauty. But the glorified body we'll receive in eternity will be beautiful and it will never show, show signs of weakness or decay. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the works whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Paul saw the human body as as just an earthen vessel, as we've already spoken about, and a temporary tent, which we're talking about now. He knew that believers would one day receive a wonderful glorified body suited to the glorious environment of heaven. It's interesting to trace Paul's testimony in this paragraph. It says there in verse 1, We know. So how do we know? Well, because we trust in the word of God. No Christian has to consult a fortune teller or a a Ouija board or a spiritualist or a deck of cards to find out what the future holds and what lies on the other side of death. God has told us all we need to know in the pages of his his word, in the pages of the Bible. Paul, we know, um, sorry, um, Paul, uh, we know, connects with the knowing, and he relates this to the resurrection of Jesus Christ we know that he is alive therefore we know that death cannot claim us because I live ye shall live also if our tent is taken down or is dissolved we don't have to fear the body is only the house that we live in while we're here on this temporal earth when a believer dies the body goes to the grave but the spirit goes to be with God Philippians 1, 20-25 uh, says, According to my earnest expectations and my hope, in that nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ be magnified in my body, whether it be life or by death. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is in the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I wot not. For I am straight betwixt two, is in a a quandary, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you uh, for all your furtherance and joy of faith. When Jesus Christ returns for his own, uh, he will raise the dead bodies in glory and the body and the spirit shall be joined once again uh, to the glorious eternity in, in heaven, which we wrote, we read in First Thessalonians. So in verse 1 there, we, we can know, we know what's going to happen. Uh, in the, the verses two to five there, he speaks about we groan. And Paul is not expressing a morbid desire for death here. In fact, his statement was just the opposite. He was eager for Jesus Christ to return so that he would be clothed upon that glorious body. He presented three possibilities using the image of the body as a tent. So when we're alive, we're residing in that tent. We've got this human temporary form. When we're dead, we're unclothed. We're out of the tent, we're naked, as he, as he talks about in there. And the third is that we're clothed upon, and that is the transformation of the body at the return of Christ. Paul was hoping um, that he would be alive and on the earth uh, at, at, the, at the time of at Christ's return, so that he might not have to go through the experience of death. Paul, Paul used uh, a similar picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, "'Behold, I show you a mystery.'" that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For where the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this tent, um, shall be put on incorruption, and the mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, we shall be brought to pass, saying, as it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us um, the, the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye you know, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. He used this idea of groaning in, in um, Romans uh, as well, Romans chapter 8, where he says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? But we hope for that which is not seen. Um, Then we do with patience wait for it. Likewise the spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we know not uh, what we should pray for as we ought but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered the glorified body is called a building of god a house not made with hands and our house uh, which is from heaven this is a contrast to our mortal bodies which came from the dust of the earth. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, so also shall we bear the image of the heavenly. And it's important to note that Paul was not groaning because of the human body, but because he longed to see Jesus Christ and receive a glorified body. He was groaning um, he was groaning for glory. He was groaning, he was longing to be with Christ, to have a glorified body and to be in that that, uh, glorious heaven in eternity with him. This explains why death holds no terrors for Christians. Paul called his death a departure. One meaning of the Greek word is to um, take one down take down one's tent and move on. So that departure, the death, is just to take down our tent and move on to the next place. But how can we be sure that one day our new bodies um, are, are going to be glorified by our Saviour? Well, you can be sure because the Spirit lives within us now. Paul mentioned the sealing of the earnest Spirit in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 22. It says, "...who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts." God when we accept Christ as saviour, has given us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to seal us, that we can never lose our salvation, but also to know that we're going to be in eternity and glory with him. Ephesians 1:13 and 14 says, "...in whom ye are also trusted after ye have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after ye have believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise." which is our earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit dwelling in the believer's body is his down payment that guarantees our future inheritance, including a glorified body. In the modern Greek word translated earnest means uh, an engagement ring. The church is engaged to Jesus Christ and is waiting for the bridegroom just to come down and take it to the wedding. Finally, we are always confident. Verses 6 through to 8. The people of God can be found in one or two places, either in heaven or in earth. None of them uh, are in the grave. None of them are in hell or in any intermediate place between earth and heaven. Believers on earth are at home in the body, while believers who have died are absent from the body. Believers on earth are absent from the Lord... While believers in heaven are present with the Lord. Because he had this kind of confidence, Paul was not afraid of suffering. He wasn't afraid of trials or even dangers. This does not suggest that he tempted the Lord by taking unnecessary risks, but it does mean that he was willing to lose his life for the sake of Christ and the ministry of the gospel. He walked by faith and not by sight. He looked at the eternal unseen not the temporal scene heaven was not simply a destination for paul it was his motivation likewise the heroes of faith in hebrews chapter 11 he looked for that heavenly city and was governed his life by eternal values as we review this section of second corinthians we can see how paul had the courage for the conflict uh, and had his, he wasn't he didn't lose heart He had a glorious ministry that was able to transform lives. He had a valuable treasure in an earthen vessel of his body. And um, he wanted to be able to share that treasure with a bankrupt world. And he had a confident faith that conquered fear. And he had a future hope um, that was both a destination and also a motivation. No wonder Paul was more than a conqueror. Every believer in Jesus Christ has these same marvellous possessions and can find them um, courage for the conflicts. Let's close in prayer. Well, God, we thank you for your word tonight and the great encouragement it is, Lord, to help uh, build us up, to keep us close to you, Lord, and we thank you for these wonderful truths, Lord, that we have in our lives. and. We thank you that you have put the Holy Spirit in each and every one of us, Lord, and renewed us and keep us. You allow us to go through things, Lord, according to your will, that you would be glorified, Lord. And we pray that you would just remind us of that, and remind us of the treasure that you are, Lord, the great gift that you can give in each one of us. Help us to be able to uh, glorify you and and uh, minister for you in the way that you would have us um, for us, Lord. We pray that you'd be with each one of us. Uh, keep us, uh, strengthen us throughout the week. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.